It's not often one man is able to move the hearts of nations, to usher change across race and age. But when someone gives their life to a divine calling, amazing things happen. That is the legacy of Billy Graham. Tonight, I'm glad to tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ can be received, your sins forgiven, your burdens lifted. Billy was born in 1918, during the end of World War I. Growing up on his family's dairy farm in North Carolina, no one could have imagined what God had in store for this hardworking young man. When he was 13 years old, he was in a play at school. His voice carried so well. I says, I, I just think there's something in that boy that we haven't discovered yet. <laughs> at age 15, he was invited to hear a man named Mordecai Ham preach at a citywide revival meeting. I was taken by a friend, and I became fascinated. And then the Spirit of God began to speak to me as I went back night after night. And uh, one night when the invitation was given, I just said, Lord, I'm going. From this moment, life would never be the same for Billy. A new passion burned in his heart to see lives changed. He went on to college, and began preaching the good news of Jesus to anyone who would listen. It was during those years of academics and Sunday sermons that Billy met Ruth. The young missionary girl raised in China would become his best friend, the true love of his life. And he would be the first to say that without Ruth, his growth as a preacher and evangelist would not have been possible. When I came out and saw her standing there, he said, that is Ruth Bell. At that moment, I was in love and not only in love, something told me inside she'll be your wife. Now, it took her nearly a year to come to that same conclusion. Word of his powerful message spread quickly. He preached on the stages of concert halls and auditoriums and over the airwaves of radio and television. And soon, people began lining the streets by the tens of thousands just to hear him speak. Before we can have world peace, we must have peace within our heart. Und bis wir Weltfrieden haben, müssen wir erst Frieden. There's only one road to heaven. You say, but if I believe God, isn't that enough? I want to tell you before you leave Madison Square Garden this night of May 15th, you can find everything that you've been searching for in Christ. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the light. He was a mighty man. The Bible tells us that in spite of our sins and rebellion, that God loves us. As countless people responded to the move of God's Spirit, the demands on Billy seemed constant. But it was Ruth and their children that brought him strength and joy. Their home was a special place where he could simply spend time as a father and loving husband. These moments were precious to Billy. Yes, uh, there is a great sense of loneliness, and if there is a price to pay in this work, uh, it is that, uh, that I'm not with my children. We are supposed to be like Jesus. God's calling on Billy's life took him from the largest stadiums to the most remote villages of Africa. He spoke not only of God's forgiveness, but also against the evils of racism, communism, and social injustice in our world. And don't let anybody ever tell you that it's white or black. Christ belongs to all people. He belongs to the whole world. He was one of the most sought-after men of this age, 
turning down the political stage and Hollywood spotlight in order to continue his ministry to the lost, weary, and forgotten. His message was unfaltering, remaining true to the gospel and his steadfast faith in Christ. I'm asking you tonight to follow him, to serve him, to let him come into your heart and forgive you. Be forgiven. Know that you're going to heaven. What can be said about one man's life? For Billy Graham, let it be said that he lived his life to bring the lost and hurting to Christ. Are you willing to receive Christ tonight? Because you may never have a moment quite like this again. You come and receive him into your heart and say yes to him. Hundreds of you right now, just get up out of your seat and say tonight, I want my sin forgiven. I want to know I'm going to heaven. I want eternal life. I'm ready to surrender my life to Christ as Lord and Savior. I want to follow him from this night on. I, uh, I only have one Billy Graham story. Uh, I was, in 1992, I was 14 years old, and uh, Billy Graham was coming and came to the Civic Stadium in uh, Portland, and I, along with our youth group, was asked if we would come and go through a whole bunch of training in order to be basically junior counselors to come down front when he did the altar call and be able to find people our own age and walk them through uh, Steps to Peace with God and the Romans Road and all those different things. And so I went fairly excited. I had only been a Christian at that point. I uh, came to Christ when I was 11, so about, about five years, four or five years. And uh, I was really excited. Uh, a lot of us went to this, and it was quite an intensive training for that age. And I went to the, auto, to the stadium, and I listened to him speak, and hundreds and hundreds of people came down. And there was a certain point where they would, they would cross like a certain line, and that's when you were supposed to get up and go down and meet them. And all my friends, one by one, went down to meet them. And I was sitting next to my mom. I don't know if she remembers this. But finally, it was like my turn in the, in the row to go, and she nudged me, and I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> and she was like, what? And I was so overwhelmed, true story, by the, by the immenseness of, of the ministry and the man and the the, you know, all the different people that I actually just stayed in my seats for both days of the, um, the, the, what do you want, crusade. And I've always regretted that. It was really interesting. I've always regretted that. And so when Billy Graham died, um, that was one of the first things that came to my mind. I was like, I didn't support Billy. I, I didn't show up when Billy needed me to show up. You know, and I took all that training and I just wasted it. And, and now I can never meet him and apologize and tell him, I wasn't there for you, Billy, when you were, when you were, when you were here. But I, I don't think Billy Graham needed me very much. Uh, I don't think he was like up there in the back like, where is Danny at? I don't see him. Like, I don't think it worked that way. But, but it is one of the first things that came to my mind. And it's going to tie well, actually, into today's talk. So we're in Acts chapter 5, if you have a Bible. If not, verses will be on the screen. Uh, let's start with kind of reflecting 
uh, about Billy Graham and how most of us perceive him. When we think of Billy Graham, many times when people talk to me about him or what I've seen online, people will use phrases and statements like, what an incredible life. That man must have been a saint. In other words, what an incredible life. It's an unattainable life that no one that is normal should strive to achieve. But in reality, the Bible says we're all called to be saints and that Billy Graham is no more or less a saint than you and I. The Greek word for saints is hagios, and it means most holy thing. When believers are called and saved, we are sanctified. That word means set apart for holy use. This means God sees us as having Jesus's own righteousness. God sees us as having Jesus' own righteousness, for we are set apart for holy use. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in other words, we are all saints who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And I bring that up to contrast that against Billy Graham, who most people would say is the saintiest of them all. He's one of those people that when you try to explain depravity, okay? So, so the cross is, uh, is, is this introduction of the gospel, right? The word of life is who Jesus is. And the cross is a perfect life lived out, sacrificed for you and me. And when you're trying to share this with people in any country, and I've done it in probably nine different countries, and I'm trying to share with people my whole, are you a good person thing? And they're like, yeah, I'm a good person. And I'm like, but are you good enough? And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, the cross is perfect. So the cross, if, if the cross is perfect, you have to be perfect. Oh, I can't be perfect. And I'm like, well, are you, but I'm better than most people will say. I'm better than most. And I'll say, but are you better than Mother Teresa? Are you better than Billy Graham? People are like, oh, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, of course not. Nobody's better than Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. And then I'm like, well, if they're proclaiming that they need the cross of Christ, don't you think you should be proclaiming you need the cross of Christ? And then people's good enough stuff just starts dissipating because of the lives these people have lived. Now, here's the problem, though, with that kind of thinking if you let it run its course. The problem is that when we see people like Billy Graham as one-offs or special or different than us and don't realize we are saints just like them, when we see them as different, the problem is that we then give ourselves permission to live our lives without the power that's offered through our sanctification or sainthood. We give our lives permission to go, well, I can never live like that, so living like this is fine. And you just look at your life and a lot of times, the most dangerous thing you can do is look at your life and compare it to people around you. Because if you're doing generally better than most, then why improve? Right? Now, I don't struggle tremendously with weight. I'd like to lose some weight, right? I'd like to trim up. But I'll tell you what. There were some moments recently where I went to some restaurants where I felt pretty good about myself. Like, there was this buffet line I went to recently, and I was like, you know what? I'm actually doing all right. Now, I have some other friends who are like fitness gurus. I go over there, and I feel like you might as well just roll me out of that house. I'm like, I don't even know. I don't even know why God uses me. I don't even know what to do. Like, because it's about who I'm around. That's not how holiness works. You are not holy enough if you're around a bunch of unholy people. You're not saint enough if you're around a bunch of people who are demonic. And you're like, well, I don't do that. So I must be all right. 
Have you ever tried that move on your wife? Right? Have you ever gone to dinner with just a terrible husband? Just a terrible husband the whole time. And half the time I'm like, this is awesome. (laughs) Because my wife's going to know how awesome I am. Because I don't do that. Do you see that? Do you see what he did? My wife doesn't work for her at all. She goes, listen, that's her problem. You're my problem. (laughs) Right? It doesn't work. And it's never supposed to work that way. You are not supposed to give yourselves permission to live without the power that your sainthood demands. And if you are a Christian, then you are sanctified. You are in that process of sanctification. That process is waking you up to what God is doing in your life. Now, we believe that when you're saved, you're saved. I'm not saying that sanctification is this, uh, uh, that you're not saved till you reach a certain point. What I'm saying is that to be sanctified is to be in the process and realize how God already sees you. Today, I want to share with you a revelation the Lord gave me a long time ago regarding my own sanctification and how God sees me. This revelation is so clearly revealed all throughout Scripture again and again and again, but perhaps nowhere more clearly than in today's passage that we're about to study. You have a sanctification process that you're engaged in if you've committed your life to Christ. And when you're in that process, if you're not willing to see what God wants to show you, then one day you're going to stop. You're going to stop evolving spiritually. You're going to stop asking hard questions and you're just going to settle in and go, well, this must be my life. I accept it as it is. And that is not what scripture teaches. And that's not what we're going to learn today. The Bible is now sharing with us that Pentecost has happened. The church has happened. People are are gathering like you are right now to learn from apostles that are teaching through the Holy Spirit the things they want them to teach. And it says that many signs and wonders were done, especially following the uh, Ananias and Sapphira fiasco. The church is in fear and wonder. Nobody wants to die. We got an email from a gentleman this week, and he said, hey, I want to help out with the church because the la- I want to offer whatever gifts I can because the last thing I want to die- do is die in church and have Danny's ushers roll me up in carpet and bury me on the Clark parking lot. <laughs> it's a true story. I have the email. I saved it. Epic. <laughs> and you can see the ushers around right now. We've got rolls of carpet for you right now because we believe in what the Bible says. Amen. <laughs> let's 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 bring it back to the cross people bring it back to what what all right verse 32 chapter verse uh yeah you're throwing me off verse 12 chapter 5 now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in solomon's portico which is a public place people would gather to learn None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, And all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, this is meaning all 12 of the apostles together were arrested. So the whole head of the church was arrested by the same group of people who had previously arrested Jesus. And they had one simple intent, and that was to eliminate them. 
to finish the movement that Jesus had started once and for all. And so they threw them into jail. And the apostles in jail were having all kinds of conversations, I'm sure. The last time Peter was in a situation like this, he denied Christ three times. So they're looking at him. He's looking at them. This might be it, guys. It was a good run. There's five, 10,000 people who know the message of Christ, and maybe that's all God wanted us to do, and our deaths will bring glory to him, and we will, will be with him in eternity, and the church will move on. But verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and this is what he said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. I love the phrase, all the words of this life. It's such a powerful phrase for the gospel. The gospel is basically the teaching or revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel means, the teaching or revelation of Jesus Christ, which the angel referred to as these words of life. Matthew Henry said, speak all the words of this heavenly divine life in comparison with which the present earthly life does not deserve the name. These words of life which the Holy Ghost puts into your mouth, the words of the gospel are the words of life, words whereby we may be saved. And so they escape through the angel and they go right back to church. <laughs> they go right back to preaching. They thought they were going to die. And instead, they're freed and not proclaimed or not sent out to go hide, but instead sent to proclaim the gospel message, the words of life to people who are dying spiritual deaths. And so that's where they go. The next morning, the high priest sent for them, but of course, they were not there. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter, verse 29, hone in on this. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. Now, this is very, very powerful for multiple different reasons. For one, the man who's sharing this is the great denier. He's the great terrible friend. He's the great backstabber. He's Peter who stood in the garden over a campfire and last time a little girl walked by when Jesus was being beaten and chained off in a corner and said, aren't you with him? Peter said, no, no, move on little one. I'm not with him. And then a woman walks by and she says, no, I'm pretty sure you're with him, the one who's causing all the trouble. And he says, no, woman. Not with him. Just leave me alone. And then a guy comes up and he says, yo, <laughs> you're with him. And Peter says, listen, I don't know why you guys keep saying this. I don't know who he is. And at that point, Peter hears chains rattle and he looks over and Jesus has turned his body towards him. And they lock eyes and a rooster crows off in the distance three times and Peter collapses for he is a failed witness 
to the one who loves him so much. Not this time. This time Peter comes out of jail and he's ready to roll. And he's like, look, you guys might kill us. You might crucify us. Here's what I know. You hung him from a tree and now he's standing next to God. And the Holy Spirit who fills us wants you to know that the words of life are for you too. This is devastating to them. This is mind-boggling to them. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while, and then he talked with them. And then he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Now, he shares something really powerful. What he shares in the next few verses isn't what we're going to talk about, though. What he shares is basically that every uh, group that has ever rose up against the church, when you cut off the head or the leader, the group disperses. But with these men, since we've cut off the head of the leader, these 12 have magnified into 12,000. What will happen if we cut off the head of 12 leaders? He says, we got to be smart. We got to be careful. And he's pondering and he's thinking, how are we going to manipulate this? How are we going to work this? How are we going to do this? What I want to talk about is, can you go back to that last verse? I want to talk about, uh, next one. Okay, next one. I want to talk about when he said that, but a Pharisee named honor the people, stood up, gave words, uh, put them outside for a minute. Wherever outside for a minute is, that's the one I wanted. Put them outside for a minute. What does that mean? So you're going to kill me and my 11 friends, and you are literally, and then I, I give witness. And I'm like, look, whatever you do to us, you just need to know Jesus loves you. And you're more mad, and you come down out of the, the, the stadium, right? Because you have to think there's a lot of guys in the room to beat on 11 guys. You know, let's say 80, 90, 100 church folk. And you come at me, and a guy steps in front, and he goes, whoa, 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 let's talk about this before we kill them. Please take them outside. So you get drug outside. What is going on in your mind right now? Hope that's a fair trial in there. I think we're going to be okay. No, you are prepared to die. You are ready. You know that you have passed the test. Peter knows that he has been the witness that God called him to be. And you hear them talking and you hear them yelling and you hear them screaming. And then suddenly they call you back. And you walk in. And without any notice and anything at all, they converge on you, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, it doesn't say they said, here's what's going to happen, guys. We're going to beat you bad. And then we're going to let you go. Okay. If someone said that, I'm going to beat you bad, but you're not going to die. I think I'd receive the beating differently. But if someone said 10 minutes earlier, we want to destroy you, your family, and everyone you've ever loved, drug me out of a room, I don't know what's going on in the room, they bring me back and just start beating me, I'm thinking this is it. This is it. They're destroying me, they're damaging me, they're hurting me, they're hurting my friends. Maybe they made them watch while they just beat on one at a time. Maybe they beat on all of them at the same time, we don't know. But what we do know is that they beat them first. And what we don't hear is that they denied anything that they were willing to face their death as witnesses, that they were willing to move forward in their faith, and that in that place, suddenly, Gamaliel from the corner, probably watching the degree of beating, says, stop, and everybody stops. 
And men with bloody knuckles and dripping sweat from the exertion they put onto other men take a step back and there's just a 12 broken, bloody, dusty bodies all throughout the room and they say, drag them out of here and shut your mouths. And so they drag them out and they get outside and they breathe like anybody would after getting beat. And they breathe and they go, wow. And maybe somebody opens a broken eye and looks at somebody else with a broken nose. And somebody else stands up and somebody else helps somebody up. Someone spits. Someone smiles. Blood all through his teeth. Somebody else coughs and then starts laughing. And Peter from the back corner says, yo, we're alive. We're alive. And suddenly they start hugging sorely. Ah, ah. But they're so excited to be alive. And so they say, who's preaching tomorrow? I am. I'm preaching tomorrow. No, I'm preaching tomorrow. Your lips all messed up, man. No one can even understand what you're saying. You know, you look crazy. I'll preach with my broken lip. I am. You know what? I'll be honest. I looked at everybody else. I'm pretty sure I got beat up the best. You did not get beat up the best. Look at this dude over here. He's still dragging along. You have, this is what guys do in situations like this. Don't think they didn't. Talking about the beating, talking about God's grace. And as they disappear down the street, I think Peter was last. I think Peter was last as he turned around. I think Peter's eyes filled with tears as he realized, (laughs) walking by himself, he realized he was the Peter God said he would be. He was the unbreakable rock. And he realized it right there and then, not because of Pentecost, not because of the gifts, not because of the blessings, he became Peter, the unbreakable rock, because of the blood and the bruises. He became who God called him to be right then, right there. He passed the test, and he was assured that from then on, he is different. And his own sanctification was made known to him most clearly that day, not in his gifts or his talents, but in the damage he so beautifully endured. I shared with you my Billy Graham failure because that crusade would have been so much better if I would have went down and helped people. I shared with you my Billy Graham failure because it really was an example of all my early faith. I came to Christ at 11 years old, and the Billy Graham example of not going down, not really professing, was in many ways an example of how I believed. I found myself helping and teaching and serving in church because for some reason, and I hope this comes across the right way, but I was gifted to do it. It, was, it worked for me. I went into uh, construction. I worked for an engineering firm right down here in downtown Vancouver. And I remember I had just got married, so I was 20 years old, 21 years old. And a local church pastor asked if I would come help in my brother's youth group. And my brother's youth group had seven people in it, and I think four of them were my cousins. <laughs> and I went, and we sat in a semicircle, and I said, I'm here to share with you guys. And we took the Bible out, because that's what they told me you had to do. And I read a story how I read stories. And they didn't leave the circle. They asked, will you help out the next week? I helped out the next week. There were 14 kids instead of seven. And I was like, this is cool. 
I helped out the next week. I got laid off for an extended period of time. I started serving at the church to kind of connect, and, and suddenly I felt like pretty, pretty good about this, and I'm, I'm doing pretty well at this. And next thing you know, seven and a half years later, I'm leading a youth group with seven full-time staff and 1,000 students in attendance. Seven and a half years later. All, <laughs> all based on I'm gifted at this. People would ask me when we go to those little pastor lunches, when did you know that God was calling you into ministry? And I was very honest. I don't know that he has. How, how, do, how do you not know that God's called you into ministry? You have the biggest youth group like in the region. And I was like, well, yeah, that's because I'm good at it. That's not because I'm called. Super honest. The pastor at the time hated it. Right? Because pastors are supposed to be called. This is all out of God's spirit, not out of gifts. This is all out of God's movement. Now, I believe it was, in spite of my attitude and the way that I approached it. And I share this for a very specific reason. Because like the Billy Graham crusade, I did want to go down because I didn't want to pay the cost. And like the calling, I didn't really want to dive into ministry like you're supposed to because I really didn't want to pay the cost. As a matter of fact, every single year, I would look at other careers. Every year, up till about 10 years in. And I never felt called. I was just gifted for it. Ten years in, God calls me to plant this church. And the first year, brilliant. We planted at Firstenberg Community Center, okay, up a uh, uh, mill plane. It's where I met Pastor Keith Walther, our children's pastor. He was actually the guy I rented the room from. We planted our church there, and we grew to a couple hundred people in the first six months. And I was like, I don't know what the big deal is. This church thing is easy. From there, a man approached me, I didn't approach him, and said, I have a large gym that is uh, the club that's in there. The old health experience is going out. It used to be the old Bally's after that. And I would love for you to put a church in there because I'm a believer, and then your staff and you can just run the gym on the side. And that's how you'll pay the rent. And I was like, brilliant. 56,000 square feet, the church was 12 months old. That's what we had. Our church grew to about 400 people. And again, I thought, what's the big deal? People said, when did you get called to ministry? Ah, I don't know. Are you going to run on the treadmill with me after church, though? Because I got 19 of them. <laughs> Slowly, over the six months that we were there, I began to lose interest in the club, which is something Danny does because Danny's not good at running clubs. Danny is gifted at church. So they would call and ask, how many memberships did you get? And I said, oh, I have no idea, but three people came to Christ. <laughs> and that didn't seem to work for them very well. After a while, uh, they decided that Danny was not fit to lead this uh, particular organization. And so they said, your church has got to go. We then, at that point, went through uh, one of the most brutal transitions I've ever been a part of in ministry. As a matter of fact, I would even go to say it's the first time I think I actually failed in ministry. That, I, that, I, that something I wanted to do didn't work. And, and we lost about 40, 35 or 40% of our church and moved to Endeavor, which is where we were for three or four years prior to here. When I was moving all of our stuff to Endeavor, and I'll never forget because it was super depressing because it, the last Sunday I preached there happened to land on my birthday at the old building before we moved downgraded to the new grade school, which was all set up and tear down. 
I'll never forget, I had a friend come, a mentor come, who no longer attends this church, and he sat with me, and he goes, hey, I just can't do this anymore. I just don't feel like I can be a part of where, where things are headed, and I'm leaving. And I remember I was just devastated. And then I remember he asked me this question because I wrote it down. Danny, if everyone leaves, are you still willing to plant this church? And ladies and gentlemen, I want to be very honest and authentic with you. That is when I was called to ministry. Because without even a second, the Holy Spirit and my spirit just became this one thing. And I remember I looked at him and said, without a doubt. Never forget it. And I left the church. Yep. I left uh, the building. We lost all the people. And we kind of broke down to this little core group of people that stayed close and stayed tight-knit and were willing to pay the cost and take a punch to the mouth, if you will, because that was my punch to the mouth, right? That was my first time ever smiling back through bloody teeth and go, yes, sir, may I have another? That's the very first time I ever really, really realized I'm called to do this, that God is with me and built me to do this. That's where a lot of the culture has come from without even realizing it, where I do the, this is your Sunday to leave our church sermons, Right? Because it was such a beautiful experience that the last thing I want to do is have a whole bunch of Christians who are just here, you know, absorbing resources and not interested in actually being a part of the gospel's movement. I only realized that was such a beautiful thing when I lost every single person that was absorbing resources and started, basically restarted the church with 170 people who were committed all to the same cause. Then suddenly we were able to stand together after getting beat down by all kinds of different things, whether it be the economy or a snowstorm that wiped out one of our Sundays or, or you know, a staff member that had to leave or just whatever struggle. We would look at each other and just be like, we're alive. We used to say all the time to each other, Keith Walther, go up to him and say it today. All the time, I think this church thing might work. We said that till about a year ago. I think this church thing might work because we had already been 400 people. We had already been established. We already had a building. And then God just went, yeah, listen, you think it's all about gifts, but that's not how sanctification works. Let me bruise and break you a little bit so you can realize just where I am inside this story. That's why we stopped two years ago preaching about getting a building. Everybody wants buildings and everybody gets buildings. And a lot of smaller churches lock into these long-term high-end building leases thinking they're going to grow them. And we said, nah, we'll just work harder. It's 145 volunteers to set up and tear down this church every single week. If 10 of them don't show up, it takes us an extra 20 minutes. 145 volunteers is what it takes. Between running children's worship, everything you see, it is an army of people who are committed to the cause. And it's because we know that he is alive. And we know, we know, amen, that he wants to use us. So here's my big revelation that I got back then that I want to give you that I think Peter, if he was today preaching this sermon about this passage, would share with you. And I'll put it on the screen. This is what you need to know today. This world will tell you that your damage determines your worth. That your mistakes determine your value. But in reality, God says that it's inside your damage that you will discover he who is worthy. And so my friends, we are all saints. We're just damaged saints. 
on our way through blood and bruises to becoming more than we ever thought we could be. But it is inside the blood and the bruises and the sacrifice that we get to experience the living, truth-giving words of the gospel. And it is inside the story of your life that God has been making himself known. You just haven't put it all together yet. You think everything that's happened to you is just happenstance. When it's God whittling and molding and carving you into this person, you just haven't decided you're willing to be yet. Lose the building, lose the people, lose the stuff, stand alone with a good friend who says, I'm out because you're terrible as a leader. And by the way, if everybody leaves, I want to know, are you so willing to be there? And stand there and say, yep, I am. I'm still me. I'm still just as damaged as I've ever been, but I am resolved to be the rock that God has called me to be, to be the damaged saint that God has called me to be. And so should you. So should you in your life right now, in your marriage, in your story. God is awakening people inside this room all throughout this county to go and reach people that only speak damaged language. That's why these authors are so powerful for us because they are wounded, broken people who know they're wounded and broken and yet through the gospel of Jesus Christ don't care. This is why you have to move in spite of your addiction, in spite of your failure, in spite of your past. This is why you have to sit with people and proclaim the gospel. This is why, by God, you do not get to look at me or anybody like me and say, well, I'm not like you. I don't have those same things. Come on, man. I've preached for 10 years. I preached for 10 years based off gifts, not even out of the spirit. And God used my damaged life to impact all kinds of people. You don't think God wants to use you where you're at, your story, your marriage? This is, this is crazy. This is the enemy telling you that you are not who and how you're supposed to be. Let me tell you this right now, and I'm going long, but I don't care. You're in, listen, you, you are exactly where you're supposed to be in the seat right now, exactly. And if you right now will just stop complaining about not being where you are and stop complaining about not being where your friends are you, or, or, or how you're, none of that stuff matters. Whatever the reason is, what I pray over you right now is that you get punched square in the face spiritually. That's what I pray. I pray spiritual punching over your souls. <laughs> Clap away, but it's about to knock you out, right? <laughs> punch us, punch us. I get it. But this is the thing, this is the thing. When you can receive those kinds of woundings, when you can awaken, when you can see that God wants to do these kinds of things in your life, then this world and this lifestyle no longer become what you desire. Instead, all you wanna do is go where he goes. All you wanna do is follow where he follows and you become super dangerous. Because let me tell you the most dangerous thing about me right now, at all this flying I get to do, all these conferences I get to do, all this fun stuff that I'm not getting invited to, I walk into the room and everybody's afraid to lose what they got but me. And I walk in the room and I flat tell them, because I got nothing to lose. What are you going to do, not invite me back? It's my first time. I don't even know you people. <laughs> I told them about our executive pastor, right? I told them about Tom Lovelace and the way that he has breathed life into our stewardship and our finances and the story of our church, the way that he's managing and helping develop the staff. And a lead guy literally said to me, he goes, you got to be careful of that guy. What? You got to be careful of that guy. He might, he might, you know, he's going to have more power than you do in the church. I'm like, he already has more power than I do in the church. I work for him. What are you talking about? 
Like, like this is how it's supposed to be. Give it all away. Give everything away. The whole church is going to belong to somebody else anyways. If he's a better manager and I'm an okay speaker, let's just build that thing and roll. Right? If you want to be a part, you got to stop. You got to stop worrying about losing what you have. Just give it all away. Corey Timboom said, hey, it's better to open your hands and give it to God than it is to cling on to it because it hurts a whole lot when he rips it out of your reality. God's going to rip some stuff out of your reality today. You know it. And he wants to because he wants those hands to cling to him for they are the only thing that brings healing into your life. So stop the lifestyles of whining. Stop the lifestyles of looking at everybody else and their paths and their patterns and instead dive into who you are in spite of who you've been and let God bruise you for better. (laughs) Yeah, bruise you for better. Because the stuff that he tears into in your life It is destroying you. The secrets and the nonsense and the addictions, it is destroying you. It destroys me. God never bruises my good stuff. He gets rid of everything that makes me think, maybe I'm too, maybe I'm not, maybe I should. He says, ah, I am all you need. And so from one damaged saint to another, are you there? Are you ready, whatever the cost, are you willing to live your life smiling back through bloodied teeth, boldly proclaiming he is worth it all? Why do we never question our pursuit of pleasure? our longing for the American dream. On the surface, it's something seemingly good. A reward, what we deserve. The result, our greatest tragedy. What is your life? You are vapor. A dispersion of water, suspended in air, momentarily transient, unraveled by the forces of nature, reduced to nothing. From birth to death, an allotment of hours, minutes, seconds, a duration unknown. Placing contentment with effort and increase. Deceived by the hope of pleasure. In desires, an appetite swells. Endlessly wanting. from one to another, promising delight, yet never satisfying, and the void still remains.
your life. In stillness, consider the truth. You are loved, fearfully and wonderfully made, created by the author of life. To know him and to realize only he can satisfy. Meeting you in your weakness, all hope is made true in him. No need to search, nothing to earn, but to simply receive in faith. Your wants exchanged for true joy glorious restoration. Surrendering all that you once were, sin is consumed, and a new beginning awaits.